There was a comedian back in the 1940s and on through the 50s and 60s, um, pre-television and then post-television. He had a radio show. Um, his name was Jack Benny. And many, many people listened to him, and he had lots of funny skits. And one of the characters, his character, uh, was um, known to be stingy. He hated spending any money. Anytime anybody asked him for a dime, he counted every cent. So he hated giving away money, and uh, in one of the skits, a mugger comes up and points a gun at him and says, your money or your life? And Jack Benny doesn't say anything. He said, hey, pal, I said your money or your life? Jack Benny goes, hold on, I'm thinking it over. Which is funny because obviously your life is worth more than whatever money you have in your pocket, but he was so stingy, so attached to his money, he thought it might be better to die than to give away the few dollars that I have. It's a joke, but actually gets to the heart, in some ways, of our gospel reading today. Because the rich young man is looking for life, namely eternal life. And he knows it's going to cost him something. That's why he comes to Jesus. He knows that he's at a crossroads in his spiritual life. It's very interesting, the details that Mark includes in this gospel account of the rich young man, that he runs up to Jesus and kneels down in front of him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we learn about this young man that he's actually a very observant religious person. Many of us can't say what he says, that he, from his youth, has observed all these commandments that that God has laid out in his covenant, that what you need to do to, to be blessed, to be in God's favor. But even though he's been so observant and so good, He knows that he's lacking something. Otherwise, why would he come to Jesus? He knows that he's doing everything right. In fact, by the Deuteronomic principle of Moses, he should feel very blessed. He's rich. He has lots of possessions. He's doing what God wants him to do. Why does he have this doubt in his mind that he needs something more, that Jesus might have some answer for him that he's looking for? He's come to this crossroads, and Jesus sees it. And Mark includes also this other detail that's only in Mark. He says, Jesus, after hearing him say, from my youth I've observed these things, he looks at him and he loves him. He looks at him and he loves him. Just imagine that look from Jesus. The rich young man must know, he knows me. He loves me. And he's about to say something that's going to scare the crud out of me. Because he's inviting me to be his friend, to be his follower to be his disciple. And we know the end of the story. Of course, he goes away sad because Jesus makes this demand that you go give away everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven, I promise you. It'll be worth it. And something in him said, I can't do it. He loves his things more than he loves Jesus. And so he can't give it away. And this gets to the heart of the meaning of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus. Because by all accounts, he's following the law. If following Jesus was like following a recipe, Jesus could just give us the directions, and we could say, okay, Jesus, thanks for the directions, and then go off by ourselves and follow every little bit and do it exactly right. And now I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm following him because he gave me the instructions, and I'm following every step. But following Jesus isn't like that. It's not like following a recipe. It's more like a blind person following someone who can see. And you just hold on to their hand 
and trust that they'll lead you where you need to go. Because I can't see, but he can. That's what it's like to follow Jesus and to say, no, I'm going to go my own way and try to follow just your instructions or the, or the map that you give me. It's very easy to get lost, to not have that security of knowing that you're on the right path. It's a whole other thing to grasp that hand and to follow it wherever it leads you. That's what it means to follow Jesus. But there are stages in this relationship of discipleship. St. John of the Cross and many of the spiritual masters have laid out what these stages look like. And there's basically three paths. The purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. The purgative way would be like when you first realize that you've been running from God. That you're doing all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things in your life that need to be purged away, to be taken away. Things like sin and certain habits, certain good things like prayer and the sacraments that need to be put into your life in order to get on the path toward God. Instead of running away from Him, you're now walking or running toward Him. And there's good feelings associated with that. If you've ever gone through the purgative way, you had a turning moment, a conversion moment, maybe a good confession, and then you start running after Jesus and you're like, okay, yeah, I need to stop doing that and stop doing that and I need to start doing this. And you get all these warm, fuzzy feelings called consolations because all of a sudden you're feeding your soul the things that it actually wants and not giving it this poison of sin that makes it die and decay and get sick. But everyone who's been on the purgative way knows that you get to some dark night. It's called the dark night of the senses where all of a sudden it just starts to be a drag. It doesn't feel the same way anymore. You've lost the enthusiasm. You don't feel like praying. You don't feel like going to Mass. You start to be tempted to, oh man, if I just could do that thing I used to do back before I became a disciple, that would be really nice right now. You stop seeing the reasons why you started along the path and you start to see the reasons why you should go back. And it's sort of a test. Like, do you actually love God, even if you don't get the warm fuzzies from him? Do you love the, co- the consolations of God, or do you love the God of consolation? And if you give over your trust in Jesus at that moment, and say, I love you no matter what, no matter if you make me feel good or not, you, you pass on to the second path, the illuminative way, where now you are a friend of the Lord, You're not just a mercenary who does it because it benefits you, but you're doing it because you love him. And you move from good to better in service of God and your neighbor, no matter what it costs you. And those who are saints make it to the unitive way before they die and go to heaven. Those who suffer the dark night of the soul, like the Mother's Teresa or St. Therese of Lisieux or St. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, those who pass through the even darker night of the soul, to get to this unitive way where now there is no division between my will and God's will. It's like we're one. We're in union. And that's what the saints are in heaven. They just want what God wants. But to get through these stages, as you can see, you have to go through this suffering and these tests and these decisions. And that's ultimately what the rich young man is doing. He's purged his life of the things that alienate him from God. He's not doing any of the things that cause his soul to die but he knows that it's not really enough to live. He wants eternal life. He wants to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so he runs to Jesus, kneels down, and asks him, what do I have to do? And he doesn't like the answer. Because he loves something more than he loves God. 
And this is why this great mystery, Jesus says, why it's so hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of God. Not because riches are bad, not because money is bad. None of these things of the world are bad in and of themselves. They're bad in as much as we love them more than we love God. St. Paul is often misquoted in the letter to Timothy that money is the root of all evil. It's actually the love of money which is the root of all evil. It's loving something more than you love God. I remember myself this moment where, I don't know if I'm on the illuminative way, in some ways I feel like I'm still in the purgative way, but there was one moment in college where I was at a retreat with my friend Pete, and we were both kind of discerning a vocation to the priesthood. We were thinking whether God was asking us to be priests, and he ended up getting married, and I obviously am here now. And we were at this retreat in a holy hour, and we were in Eucharistic adoration, and I'd been kind of fighting this whole thing in my heart that, yeah, I know that that would be great, God, and, uh, you know, I could serve you very well as a priest, but I could also serve you as a married person and, you know, give all sorts of money to the church and make a bunch of money for myself, too, and raise a family, and I had my own plans for my life, but there I was at this retreat with a bunch of young men who were all thinking about the priesthood, and it was like Eucharistic adoration, I'm with Jesus, and it's just me and him. And it's scaring me because it's feeling more and more like, well, at least I, I might go to the seminary, you know, and you don't, have to, you don't have to become a priest if you go to seminary. It takes a long time. It's like six years. I could change my mind and leave and, and then start living my life the way I planned it. But I could give God this much. I could give him an inch. But he might take a mile if I give him an inch. But I felt like I just, in that moment, I had to say it out loud. I had to, like, make it real. So I'm kneeling next to my friend Pete, and I just whisper over to him. I go, Pete. I think I, I think I have to go to the seminary. And he just turns to me and he goes, word. <laughs> Which is not the answer I was looking for, but it made it concrete. It's like I, I shared with somebody that I loved and that knew me what I felt like God was inviting me to do. And just making that act of trust that gave me this freedom and I went on and there was all sorts of other acts of trust that I had to make in the Lord before I was ready to, to lay down on the marble at Holy Name Cathedral and actually assent to this, to give God total control. But the point is this, that there's a big difference between just not sinning and giving Christ total control over my life. I'll say that again. There's a difference between just not sinning, not doing things that offend God or run away from him. There's a difference between that and giving Christ control over my life, directing me, and leading me. And there are all sorts of things competing for my loves, my affections, my desires in the world. Perhaps more than anything, my own autonomy, my own control, my own right to decide my destiny, where I'm going in life. If I really give Christ control over that, that's what the rich young man sees. Because Christ might give him back all of those riches. He might give him back all that he has but it would be on God's terms, not his own. He wouldn't be able to use them just the way he wanted to. God would direct him. He would tell him how to use those possessions to benefit his own spiritual life and benefit his neighbor. But to give up that control, this is why it's much easier for someone who is poor, who is humble, to enter the kingdom of God because they don't already have all of these things. They don't already possess something that they love and prize more than their friendship with God. 
I'll just finish with this. I have a, a blue Hot Wheels car on my desk at my house where I write a lot of my homilies and do my work. It was given to me by a little boy on Easter Sunday a few years ago. And of course, Easter Sunday, a lot of people come out that you don't see all year round, which is great. I love to see them. I try not to make them feel bad. Welcome them back the next week. And there was this mother with her little boy who I'd never seen before. And he had in his hand this little blue car. And as people are streaming out of mass and shaking hands, saying, nice to see you, see you next week. And, and this little boy comes out and he's holding his mother's hand in one hand and has the car in the other. And I say, hello, young man, how are you? And he just puts this car right up in front of me. And I was like, oh, that's a beautiful car. And he just held it there. So I was like, okay, I took it. I'm like, this is really nice. And he put his hand down and didn't ask for it back. I'm like, do you want your car back? And he didn't say anything. He just started walking away. (laughs) And I was left with this blue car, and I didn't know what to do with it, so I kept it. And to me, it's like this symbol. Like, when you see God, whatever's in your hand, just give it to him. Whatever you have. That's what it's like to be in love with God. That's what it's like to be totally humble and childlike before him, to trust him, that he knows better how I'm going to be happy, how to give me life, than I know. He's a better director, a better captain of the ship than I am. And that's the true test to move us along these ways, the purgative, the illuminative, and finally to the unitive, to sanctity, to sainthood, is to just stand before God, let him look at me and love me, and whatever I have in my hand, say, it's yours. It's yours.